0: Welcome to Ethics and Marketing Podcast. My name is Mikhail Mizgin and today I joined by Alice Carolina. We talk about ethical marketing, where manipulation and marketing originates, the use of psychology in marketing, boundaries between persuasion and manipulation, limitations to ethical marketing set by capitalism, marketing utopia, and more. Hi Alice, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Hello, thank you so much for having me.
0: Maybe you could introduce yourself and tell us what you do.
1: Of course. I am the founder of the movement for ethical marketing. We started in 2018 officially with an official website, but have worked on ethical communication for a very long time before that. So this is now where we're at. We just launched our community a few weeks ago where we are discussing ethical marketing topics together.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. My first question to you is, what is ethical marketing and how do you define it?
1: (laughs) The big question first. I love it. Um, (laughs) We actually believe um, ethical marketing to be sort of a communal approach. Like We find out together what it really is because we have this interpretation that what we have so far in the ethical market or in the marketing world is very much driven by experts telling us what the right thing is to do, um, which has led us into a bit of a (laughs) kerfuffle um, and isn't really helpful. So we are looking at ethical marketing as sort of a a big gray area of discovering what good communication is. Um, And there's a lot of you know, nuance between what's straightforward storytelling and really good advertising and what is actually unethical practicing. So ethical marketing to us is the, let's say, research and practice and development of understanding psychological tactics and not using them anymore. That's a small part of it. And then there is a bigger part about communicating inclusively and clearly and transparently making sure that we actually make all audiences feel welcome. And we take part in changing the marketplace.
0: So you say experts, and uh, who are those experts?
1: Experts to me, in quotation marks, are people who decided that they have the answer to all the questions when it comes to marketing, which could mean that they decided to either take corporate rules online or vice versa, and are telling us now how to market properly. And that ends up um, being very much focused on um, how to properly use psychology. Um, And by properly, I mean how to best use psychology in order to make us buy more. Um, And so when I say experts, it's not necessarily the people who are um, peddling ethical marketing, but usually the people who have not necessarily their clients and customers um, at heart, but mostly a sale and profit. So obviously, there's a bit of a nuance here. um, And I would say there's lots of experts out there who know their stuff, but they're not as loud.
0: And uh, why did you decide to start the movement? What triggered you to do that? And what is your goal? Yeah,
1: yeah. I initially started um, thinking about ethical marketing. Well, really, to be honest, I started when I was very young with my mom who taught communication at our local graphic design school, which I then ended up up attending. Um, But really, I had always sort of learned about different ways to manipulate, (laughs) I guess, throughout many forms and phases of my career uh, in communications. And then I eventually realized I didn't want to be part of the bigger agency conglomerate part of the boys club. Um, So I struck out on my own with my own online business in 2015, which is when I realized that all of these corporate advertising marketing schemes were very present in the online world. They were just on steroids. Um, And that was the moment I realized that online or the internet wasn't this great magical place where we could create and invent anything. It was just using all of the worst tactics, but just five times more potent, I guess, because everything moves a lot quicker. So when I entered the online world, um, with all of my wealth of knowledge, <laughs> of how to manipulate people properly, <laughs> um, and really not wanting to do that anymore. And I saw what was happening um, with all these online marketing trends at the time, it was mostly, you know, six figures in six days or whatever the typical um, ploy was. Um, I felt like well, okay, we know this is wrong. So um, I'm going to find my people who also think that and then we're going (laughs) to change it. Um, And funny enough, nobody else was talking about it. Um, Everybody just assumed this was how marketing was done. And no surprise there, because that's what we were taught. So makes complete sense. And so I started talking about it more regularly with people around, especially around charm pricing, because it was such a easy tactic to start with to tell people what's sort of a black and white approach to how we could change a tactic from one manipulative way to do it to another Um, by, you know, instead of using term pricing, using round numbers was one very simple way to sort of avoid the psychological manipulation. And people started really sort of waking up to that or asking me more questions about it. Um, And then I eventually realized this could potentially be something where we could turn it into brand value. um, When people decide to choose to not use psychological tactics anymore, they would be able to, Get a badge of some sort in order to show people that they're not using psychological tactics. And that would sort of increase their brand value and make people trust them more. And so that's where I kind of started tinkering. And then, with the help of several friends along the way, um, I eventually created the actual movement. which at the time was simply, you know, pledge to not use charm prices, and you get a badge. (laughs) And then we grew as a team, because people started finding me the right people who helped me grow the actual movement itself. And then we just set out to get as many people on board as we could, because most people who recognized um, the psychological tactics, when we pointed them out, were very much on board with, you know, changing their ways, <laughs> um, mostly because they had just never thought of it before, you know, so that's where it started. And then we kept going. Originally, I wanted to create a certification, similar to organic or, um, you know, fair trade. And um over the course of many, many discussions with uh, my then pretty large team, uh, we sort of came to a place where we realized the standard, a certification would actually not be in the best interest of those we're serving because it can be too easily used as a checklist to, you know, just have some numbers and then move on instead of actually really changing how we do things, you know? Um, and it also has a bit of a, uh, patriarchal way of being um, most standards are yeah just a little oppressive sometimes too so um yeah
0: so you say psychology and manipulation and I definitely agree with you that uh, manipulation should not be used in marketing and that's why we're here right uh, <laughs> but I often wonder about uh, the difference between manipulation, uh, persuasion, and influence. Mm. It seems to me that somehow marketing job is, is to persuade, influence somehow present in marketing. Mm. Um, I always look at things and trying to understand what are the boundaries? What are the boundaries of persuasion? And when persuasion turns into manipulation, Mm-hmm. And and behavioral science is big in marketing. Yep. <laughs> um, marketers often look at ways to use insights from behavioral science to influence people's decision-making. So wh- wh- what do you think? Should marketers appeal to rational mind only, uh, which we can equate probably to conscious consumption? Or is there a room for using behavioral science slash psychology in marketing? Hmm.
1: Such a great question. Um, First of all, I am not a behavioral scientist nor am I a psychologist, um, so I can't speak to all the details of behavioral science. Um, We do have one um, brilliant academic on our team, uh, Maria Rangokure, and they just are in the process of publishing their paper on exactly this topic, which is going to be a phenomenal piece of information for all of us to have. And they created a graph within it without revealing too much about it. They have discovered that influence in itself is a neutral term. But influence can range from how much information you have, how much awareness you have, and how much choice you have. Or consent. So let's say brainwashing is on the very terrible end of the spectrum, where you have no awareness, and you have no choice, and you are basically just being put through the ringer. Manipulation is somewhere on there, some behavioral science stuff is somewhere on that spectrum. But where we really want to look is in the top right quadrant, if we look at it as a graph, um, which is the most awareness with the most choice. So that means If I have all the information and I am aware of all the details and nothing is fine printed somewhere that I can't see immediately, and I have the ability to say yes or no (laughs) to the thing that is being presented to me, then we are looking at what we would say, sort of a clean bill of influence. (laughs) You are actually in a state where you have the complete conscious choice. And that is what we're aiming for. That doesn't mean that we can't be evocative in our language, that we can't use our feelings when we're writing or, um, or speak to very important values and purpose that our people may have. You know, we are, we are as marketers, always driven to find the best solution for the people that we're, we're selling something to. And that is where we're starting. We say, okay, if the person is before the sale then we are on the end of the spectrum where we feel like we're actually solving a problem. And marketing shouldn't be erased, nor should you know any way of bringing that problem to the person or solution to the problem, um, to the person that's having the problem, sorry. But we could actually work with the very, very brilliant minds that we're trying to reach. So instead of trying to trick them into, you know, by not telling the, the whole truth or omitting some stuff or not disclaiming exactly what the email is used for, et cetera. Um, and by, you know, chasing them down funnel tunnels that um, <laughs> ended end us up on weird landing pages that we never wanted to be. And we actually have to close our browsers in order to get out. We could work with what people are actually bringing and saying to us and then present them with a choice. So, To me, that means using behavioral analysis potentially as, well, what do people who are, I don't know, single moms with um, this, this particular problem, what do they actually need and how do they behave? But then presenting the problem in a way or presenting the solution to their problem in a way that is both with the fullest awareness of what they're looking at, and they have the ability to consent at whatever time scale they want, whether that be in the moment or a week later.
0: So basically it's um, full transparency, or at least as much transparency as you can get, uh, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: as you can create uh, from business side.
1: Yeah, which can be simply, you know, here's all the details of what you're getting and here's the price. And this is what the solution will, this is what it's going to be like for you when you've experienced this. And the reason why it's important is this and this and this. Do you want it? (laughs) You know, it's not, it doesn't mean I have the one solution to your problem, which must be these and these and these things. And imagine it getting worse and your family's gonna hate you. I know I'm gonna, I'm going into very extremes here, (laughs) but the idea still is, you know, you are not okay as a person. Let me find a way for you to feel better about yourself. Because you inherently are flawed, and therefore, um, so it's it's kind of a different it's a different approach because we're not looking at profit as the main goal, but at the solution to their problem as the main goal. Because a client who is trusted with knowing their best interest <laughs> will come back and will become a relationship for you know either future clients that you may have through referrals or um, returning clients, returning customers. Um, I think it's just such an obvious positive loop that I sometimes I'm surprised that we're still sticking to all these manipulative tactics because it's such an obvious, if I feel trusted and taken care of, I will recommend that product 100% if somebody asks me and I will probably stick with that product and tell other people about it anyways. So
0: at the same time, I think some of the practices have been around for so long that people don't see them as unethical. And I mean on both sides business, marketers, and people who buy products. And you mentioned price. I think it's a great example. Left digit bias is probably the best example. And it's also one of the earliest <laughs> tactics that was explored in regards to ethics and marketing. There have been studies that proved that people do really uh, find such prices more attractive. That uh, th- This results in additional profits for businesses. And I just wonder, uh, how can we convince businesses... Uh, they, they need to change this tactic so that, you know, because <laughs> for them it's profit at the same yeah. time, the society, the broader society doesn't really feel that this is manipulative, even though like it's a yeah. classic uh, example of manipulation. And so mm-hmm. we're kind of stuck in this uh, vicious cycle of how, how do you even begin changing the price?
1: Such a good question. Um, this is why I started yelling about charm pricing in twenty fifteen when I saw how much it was rampant. And I think there is a difference between, you know, um lower priced offers versus larger price offers, etc. So I think the charm prices works on a certain scale. And then of course we also need to consider that sometimes round numbers also can be manipulative. Um In the sense of like, you know, making it a luxury product, depending on how high you go. Um, So there are so many nuances to this. I think what I keep coming back to is sort of just a profound shift in how we view our clients and customers and consumers. And first of all, maybe not calling them that only, (laughs) but seeing them as people and understanding that there is a a broader cycle at play. And this is the part that, you know, some people call utopian. But I do believe, in a way, that if we were to change our sales tactics, we wouldn't have as much miss and overconsumption, which in turn would create better products and therefore a better economy. So I think it is almost like a societal impetus to, first of all, on the very basic relationship level, put the person before the sale which also means person before profit. So basically saying, if you want to keep lying to your people and, and trick them into buying stuff, that's fine. If that's what you choose, if profit is what you choose, but really to me, what would be the most interesting choice is, Hey, I have a product that I really, really believe in, um, or a service. And I think it's going to really be helpful and beneficial to the people buying it. I am going to value it at the price that I think these people need it. And I am going to trust those people to know the goodness of my product by me describing it to them and giving them the full picture. And then they will buy it because it is a good product with a good value system with um, proper production. And that's why they want to buy it. Not because it is, I I have found a way to trick them. So it's an ideological change. It's not necessarily a, how can we create more profit? Although in the end, I find, um, I know that charm pricing is such an old tactic, like you said, and people are so used to it. Um, You know, even kids with their lemonade stands would make their lemonades 99 cents, you know? Um, It's so obvious that this is how sales works to most people, which is why I think that's exactly the point where we should hook in and say, hey, wait a minute, that's actually manipulative. But what what does it actually mean to be a consumer in a manipulative world? And what would it mean if we weren't like that? And if we had an actual sustainable economic cycle? So that means products and services that serve the world instead of keep exploiting and destroying it. Because inevitably, if you sell more of a thing that is probably inherently maybe not even worth that <laughs> we end up creating um you know we end up creating customers and clients that are jumping on a sale or jumping on something that is cheaper for them not understanding how much we're influencing the amount of products being made that are just not useful or beneficial and in the worst case harmful so It is a a bigger picture, sort of zoom out situation, I find. Um, I'm asking people to zoom out and to think of a global cycle where most people are harmed currently in the current process. So violation of ethics is the norm right now in all areas. And the idea that we can continue as a society with that in place just seems, well, laughable to me because we can see the effects, we can already see the effect, we're living the effects right now. And I think how we sell and how we market have a lot have a lot more impact than we think on the small scale, you know, $29 course that we're selling. If we could educate these clients and customers and consumers, these people, that they don't need to believe everything they're being sold, they don't, they have a choice here, they can remove themselves from maybe a high-pressure sales situation because they can recognize it when it happens, I think that would actually create a lot more conscious consumers, which then in turn would require companies and businesses to be a lot more conscious in turn. And then, you know, we have utopia. (laughs) We have a situation where it actually works for everyone, and we're not exploiting people in countries that are rich (laughs) but made poor, you know?
0: Yeah, it does seem to me like a utopia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, what a
1: convenient story. What a convenient story to tell that freedom and health and f- you know, safety for all is a utopia. How terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> that should be the norm and it should be something we're all striving for. The idea that it it has become a utopia is so very much like linked to how can we make the most profit? Like if you think of it, and I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory, but if you think about what actually makes us buy stuff, it's us not feeling like we have enough or we won't have enough or we are not enough and we need to consume in order to fill those gaps. What if it was the opposite? What if we did have enough and we felt like we had enough and we would consume the exact things that we need in the exact moment? And yes, that would mean that some businesses may cave, the ones that are creating really cheap, awful products. But I also think that we could actually (laughs) maybe do something about the really, really terrible crises that we're working with all across the globe.
0: What do you think is the balance between dreaming big and making progress today? At the end of the day, most of the marketers are in a situation where they can't change. Um, of course, they can change the big picture, but they often struggle to change, um, make even some smaller changes within their companies they they work for. So w- what I think is that dreaming big is great. It can be your motivation, but if you focus on just that, sometimes it could paralyze you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. For, where do I begin? What should I do? I can't uh, start a revolution. Uh, <laughs>
1: well, just why not? Too much.
0: Um, and so I'm just thinking about very specific situations. Somebody mm-hmm. working at a company and like incremental changes. Like, mm-hmm. what can I do? What are the small things I can do to make things better? Or do you think like it's sort of meaningless in the big picture to do all these small changes? What do you think?
1: No, I think I think you're spot on. Um, that's exactly what we've been talking about for the last few years as we've been building our movement, because this is kind of the point. <laughs> um There's a few things. Number one, never let go of that utopia because I think there's a part of. (laughs) I hesitate to call it utopia because I think it should just be the world as it is. Um, But if you think of you know any kind of marginalized communities who are faring still terribly, you know, generally not great, but have had significant improvements. When I think of women (laughs) finally being able to vote, or Companies actually looking at um, how to make their places of work more inclusive and diverse. I think there is a way that we can approach this, where we can bring that utopia in and say, okay, so what are what are that what are those things that we can do that will incrementally shift things? And this is where we believe we look at. This is a very specific. Okay, I'm going to get very specific. We look at the different topics and tactics um, w- that we're sort of generally faced with, be it charm pricing or uh, FUD or, you know, all those reciprocity games or, you know, all kinds of different bait and switch tactics. Looking at those tactics and just reviewing how our businesses, our corporations are doing them currently. How are we using our touch points with our consumers, our entire marketing funnel? What, what are the different areas where we use these tactics and eliminate them slowly one by one and just choosing one maybe to start and saying, okay, we're going to start uh, you know, eliminating charm prices. What does that mean? Where do we start with that? Or at least price priming. Maybe we're not going to tell people that um, other people charge $40,000 for this. We only charge $20,000. Know, there's little tactics that we do that we're, we've been taught that I think we can start with. Um, so tactics are a great place to start to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm moving. I'm moving out of, <laughs> out of complete p- paralysis because I know that feeling well. I think we all do when faced with a really, really big cultural shift. So procedures, policies, touch point reviews, looking at how we're actually holding the space and how we're using these tactics and slightly adjusting them until we realize, oh, actually we don't need that at all anymore. And then there's the other side of it, which I'm calling these sort of big themes where I often recommend choosing a thing that makes us curious, for example, truth and reconciliation, or accessibility, or name a thing, duty of care, (laughs) uh, sustainability, whatever you're sort of like curious about, as a company, as a marketer, as as a small business owner, and sinking into that for a year and just looking at, okay, so how can I make my tech more accessible? How can I become more accessible? What do I understand about ableism and how I'm internalizing that? And then over time learning, you know, by learning one thing, you learn how to treat other things as well. So that when the next big scary topic comes, uh, you're a little more prepared because you've seen yourself kind of go through the process. So, the very very detailed stuff is what's going to change things the tactics are not all of ethical marketing you know it's ethical marketing isn't the erasure of all tactics that are psychological manipulative ethical marketing is a lot broader than that but it is a really really fantastic place to start because tactics are numbing the people that were You know, selling to. So the more conscious choice we give them, the more we'll be able to have a relationship and a conversation with the people we're selling to and find out what they actually need and how they need it best and become a really, really trusted company for them. So tactics are a great place. And then looking at these big picture topics is also a great place to start as just an experiment in curiosity. Where am I driven to first? What are my company values? If I am um, selling eco products, then probably sustainability should be really, really big. And I should look at w- where I'm greenwashing because I most likely am <laughs> um, because we are all you know, taught these things. So just going through it one by one. And what we've discovered is it's really best in community, <laughs> in, you know, being together with other people, just like you, who are, you know, setting a standard and saying, hey, I I think that we should talk about this. Um, let's flock and find out what the next step is together, which is why we built a community. But really, I think what I want to stress here is that this is the work. This is the big liberation work. We don't, need to rush through this, even though it seems like we should change it tomorrow or I feel that way often. But what we have as a as a standing motto in the ethical move is not in our lifetime. It's probably not going to happen in our lifetime. That doesn't mean we're not going to do everything we can to make it happen in our lifetime. But it kind of takes the immediacy out of it to know that we are actually working towards a betterment of the global economy in a, as a whole, as a collective.
0: And so let me ask you uh, this question. So, we do these tactics, incremental changes, and I'm wondering whether this really improves marketing or does it more improve marketers in terms of making them more aware of ethical problems in things they do? Sometimes I'm looking at certain businesses making little tweaks in uh, tactics, want to change uh, the bigger problem these companies present uh, in in their business model. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, like, for example, Facebook has probably brilliant accessibility, but the bigger problem with this company, you know, doesn't really make you feel uh, (laughs) proud in ethical terms if, if you are inside Facebook if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I probably know the answer, but uh, I'll ask you anyway. Does the current system have a sufficient capacity for improvement? Like how far can you go with these tactics to actually do something that that's tangible? Or does the system have to change to make things really different?
1: Well, I think... I think there's um, an understanding that we either have to smash capitalism and flip everything on its head and change everything in order to even have a chance, which, you know, you could argue that. I actually believe back to the incremental change that if we slowly build a different thing within what we're working with, sort of eroding it from within, I feel like we have a chance at almost creating like little mini bubbles or silos within within the bigger system until I hope we have critical mass and we can we can actually sort of have a reverberating understanding from these marketers that are changing to the consumers and customers and clients which I'm so glad we're finally taking responsibility for our end, you know, that we're not just blaming everything on the conscious consumer anymore. I mean, we still are mostly, but at least finally, businesses and marketers are waking up to the fact that they are contributing to the problem. (laughs) But we do have to recognize the power and real value and quality that these people have that we're selling to. Once they understand that there is a different way they could be sold to, they will require that from other businesses as well. So The idea is mutual education from and and get to a place where we can actually see a difference in, in how we're operating and how we're so that the other companies that are not doing that, you know, the big ones, the ones that are shooting rockets into space, they don't stand a chance anymore, because we're suddenly seeing all these little intricate ways that, you know, that that is just so, so harmful. And so once we know that there is a different way, we have a way of sort of, we have a possibility to almost like bounce knowledge back and forth and in turn learn that. I know this was a very convoluted way of saying that, but the idea is if we as marketers and companies that have these marketing departments change the way we operate and make incremental changes and our clients, customers, and consumers, those people learn alongside us that there is a different way to consume that they actually can wait a week. They don't have to immediately buy something, you know, stuff like that. Then we get to a place where we can actually create a different system from within. That's my hope. And I don't think that the current system built on exploitation is actually I don't think we can change it enough in t- to turn it into something viable and sustainable for everyone. I think it doesn't actually work that way. It is built on profit and exploitation. It can't actually, you know, it can't actually survive if, if that doesn't, if that is not the main goal. So a system that is built on relationships and trust and transparency would have to be something else, I think
0: thinking about this on a big scale as as we're already doing uh, <laughs> the problem of consumerism culture and that we as a society behave in a way that uh, that we do expecting delivery next day and buying things without and even at the time of financial crisis where mm-hmm. people don't have money but they keep buying stuff so to what extent consumers contribute To the problem in your opinion so what is the root cause is it the culture in the society or is it like businesses really is the root cause or is it like a chicken and an egg question (laughs) i
1: think it is a bit of a chicken and egg situation however i don't think i wanted i want to separate things i don't think business per se or marketing or the economy are a bad thing at all Um, I don't want those vilified and made into, you know, if we didn't have it, we'd all be better. We should all trade things uh, instead. There should be no money anymore. Like, I don't, I'm Swiss. I don't really like all or nothing, you know, black and white, no consensus. That makes no sense. However, I do think that when we discovered that, well, it's quite easy to exploit and to oppress and nobody need know, that's when we sort of found this little wellspring of greed (laughs) that we like to come back to. I think, I mean, there is a chicken and egg situation because our scarcity experience in the world, um, and I always hesitate calling it a scarcity mindset, even though that's maybe what it is, but it just sounds so, yeah, I don't know. It feels like it's been overused um, for, you know, selling money programs. But the idea, the idea had to be brought into us that we don't have enough and we are not enough. And this goes back to the very sort of core of who we are, I think, as humans. I don't think we inherently have that belief about ourselves from birth. That's not something we are born with that experience. Then again, you know, unless you are actually in a perilous situation, of course. I think that. It is very easy to exploit an experience and a feeling that um, goes so very much to our existential core, which is the fear of, well, should we call it death? <laughs> should we call it e- extinction or annihilation? Like that fear, that deeper fear that I still want to study so badly, <laughs> because I feel like it's it's like the the little kernel that makes all of these consumption tactics work so well the idea that we're that we're flawed inherently the you know the original sinner all these things and that we have to fix it somehow and we are on a quest throughout the rest of our lives to fix it and we're never good enough and there's never enough in our lives and consumption is just a very very easy way a very addictive way to get to fix what we inherently feel as is wrong with ourselves so a new pair of jeans might make me feel better about my body because my body has been shamed in many 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 ways from childhood i don't think if we if we grew up outside of the whole body construct you know somewhere summer in the woods i mean that's the worst case scenario um idea um I don't think we'd have the same body issues we do because we're growing up in this society. So that is what we have to deal with as consumers, clients, you know. That is that is who we are on one end of the sales spectrum. And then on the other hand, we have really really smart people who understand and who learned and who studied how to best exploit that. And what we can do to dominate and how we can get more of the thing that we already want, like more money, more land, more territory, more whatever it is, more, more fame, whatever the thing is that we think we need more of. I mean, we're all both, right? We're all consumers and we're all marketers. <laughs> so we can't ever be outside of that role. So this very inherent need for something to fill that experience of if I don't have enough I'm going to perish is on both sides so that (laughs) we end up in these weird conversations. I don't know if you've ever had this where you're pitching to a new client and you're trying to find the highest number you can pitch them without losing them and they're trying to get the lowest number out of you they can get. And both sides are just basically dealing with the same fear of this person is taking advantage of me or this person is Like, how much can I get out of this interaction? And I think what I would like to see is a flip of that where we can see what would be the most benefit to either side. And I know that that is a very, very far, you know, very far end of the spectrum. But the responsibility really lies on both sides. But also we are the same. And that sounds very spiritual. (laughs) Um, I think there is... Um, a greater responsibility currently, because I experience you know the sales process and how we sell and marketers and and salespeople as, and I hesitate to use this word, but I can't really avoid it as the abuser in the situation. So right now, that part has has is stronger, let's say because we have all the tools, we have all the money, we have all the research, we know exactly how to exploit it. And the consumer gets bombarded with that and has no other choice. I fall into the same trap. I buy stuff that I shouldn't, or I suddenly want something that I'm like, wait, what am I doing? You know, I have a little 24 hour timer when I really want something. And I just like tell myself, okay, if tomorrow, (laughs) at the same time, I still want this thing, I'll go have a look again. But I could tell, I can tell when I'm sucked into things and I've studied it since I don't know how long even with my mom in the grocery store when I was a kid like it's not it's not that I don't know it's that those tactics are so smart
0: shifting gears a little bit what are the most common problems you see marketers and businesses face when they come for advice to you and uh, I mean I mean ethical problems
1: yeah the most common ones are what you were Sort of referring to uh, not too long ago, where he said, Where do I start? <laughs> mm-hmm. Now I need to, you know, burn everything down and start from scratch again. So, this idea that what I have is now inherently flawed, what I've built over years is inherently flawed, and now I need to, you know, change everything. Um, so, that is definitely one side of it. But throughout the work I've done, it's typically this. This place of okay, I I have a good thing. I've made a good thing. I have a good product or a good service, and I want to bring it to my people in a way that respects them and honors them. And so I want someone to look at what I'm doing right now and tell me where the flaws are. In the sense of you know, how can I create an, an ethical launch sequence for my email list? Um, very specifically, you know, how can I create a Um, an overall marketing campaign that is based on mutual respect instead of how can I sell this next course that I'm doing? Um, So really going back into who we are inherently, what our value system is and what our purpose is as businesses, as, you know, our values, our vision, our mission, you know, all those deep intrinsic under the surface uh, brand values. And from there, understanding what the next move would be in the sense of, okay, so I really am a business based on relationships. So how can we establish and create more relationships? Or I really am a business based on storytelling. How can we use storytelling to bring whatever your storytelling products are to life? Um, Those like very, it's almost like every person comes to comes to me with a very, very unique system, obviously and then how do we how how to explore what is already there and what we can already work with and then from a perspective of the ethical move community we have people joining us that know that there's a different way and now they want to have the support and the mutual you know knowledge sharing that really brings them to a place where they understand better even the things that they already know a little bit about you know they understand that scarcity tactics are not great but what really you know is behind that and how can we work with that
0: what do you think is the motivation of people who who start thinking about changing the ways of how they do things like what triggers them do you see any kind of pattern in terms of how people start realizing and looking for uh, more ethical ways to do their job? Or is it very individual and very difficult to understand?
1: Well, I do think it's individual and I almost want to turn the question around (laughs) because I know what happened for me, but it's because I, I studied it for so long. I feel like I was already in the mix of it and it was quite natural for me to then see how it was used in the online world. But most people, I would say, had a moment where they were really, really screwed over. (laughs) Either they, you know, entered a high ticket program and weren't given what they were promised, or they had one too many webinars with, you know, half of it being a sales pitch, or just, you know, just feeling really let down by something they trusted and believed in. Um, And then they have this minute of like, wait, that's not right. And I don't want to be that way. I don't want to do that. So I think a lot of people experience the, the sort of like the gross fallout of what happens when you're actually sold to in a manipulative way and then feel like this is not right. This is not how I want to operate my business. So often it comes from this intrinsic place of, hey, I want to make a difference. And, you know, also in, in reflection to the world that we're in right now, where we see so many atrocities and where we've, you know, we've really had this big sort of woke wave <laughs> happening since well. Probably much longer than COVID, but I think COVID has had a big impact in how we, how we, you know, look at the world and go, wait, what's important? What do I? How do I want to be in the world? Um, what's actually my purpose here? And why? Why would I keep using something that was created to harm people? Why would I do that? Um, so I think there's a there's a lot of nuance. Um, in how people arrive at this conclusion. And some people literally just see our badge somewhere uh, or somebody talking about it or hear this word ethical marketing or the term and feel like, wait, what's that? How How is that important? Because ethics... Deep down somewhere, are still important to most people. Like we we have tons and tons of movies about the heroes, you know, walking away from a big chunk of change to, (laughs) you know, to help this one little child or something like that. Um, We do identify with that with that with that goodness, I guess, that we want to share, like the common good that we would like to participate in. And so I think it's just a little moment that happens either on the experience of something terrible or the, the experience of something that someone's doing that's really cool. Like, you know, just seeing, for example, I, I just saw my, my, a friend of mine, I signed up for a call with them and in their call questionnaire, there was, you know, the question about what are your pronouns? If you're, if you're feeling safe enough to share and what are the needs that you have maybe for access? So I know how to navigate them. And that is such a brilliant way of immediately creating a safe space. So that now makes me feel like, oh, gosh, this is so obvious. Why didn't I do this before? So I think it's a little bit of that where we just kind of wake up to it and then go, oh, yeah, this is really obvious. And it should really only be this way. And then we can't unsee it. I like to compare it to the matrix (laughs) because it's kind of that, you know, you see behind the veil and then you can't unsee it. And then all the other tactics and all the other practices all of a sudden become very obvious, you know?
0: You mentioned, uh, and I'm with you on this, that ethics in marketing is a very broad topic and, Mm. and it includes a lot more things than just manipulation and from my point of view, manipulation is probably the most commonly discussed topic when it comes to ethical problems in marketing. Are there any areas of ethical marketing that you wish people would discuss more often that you don't see discussed at all maybe oh That's when such people a good come question. when when people come to you, they probably bring up certain cases certain issues but what people rarely bring to you?
1: Hmm, such a good question, and I think this is a this is going to be a very personal answer because I think we're already talking a lot more, not enough. Just so you understand me, we're not talking about any of this stuff enough yet. Um, but I think people are getting aware in you know how to make their spaces more inclusive, potentially, or you know. Um, talking about even greenwashing, pinkwashing, all the different washings or scarcity, urgency, all that stuff. Um, Even shaming now is finally talked about more as well. What I think I would love to have a bigger conversation about is what I'm putting under the umbrella of duty of care, which to me means creating as safe a space as possible for the people around us. And this is so important to me because of my background with trauma, I think a lot of us have experienced trauma in some way or another. And the way that marketing operates currently, it it is very much exploiting those traumatic experiences that we've had, and that feeling of loss of identity and loss of of sense of self, etc. And I think what we can do is we can create a space where the person across from us is actually held in that Difficulty and in that fear. Right now, I think the way that we sell things, like even if, let's say, a coaching package is fantastic, you know, a really, really safe space, a wonderfully diverse place, we feel really held in the space. But if the sales for that are so, are in a way that I feel like I have to defend my own transformation (laughs) or whatever the word is of the day, um, if I have to defend why I, how much I actually care about something or my own personal growth. Like one of the favorite tactics is, you know, if you really cared about your personal growth, you would buy this program, you would put the money in and go into debt. But clearly you don't, (laughs) if you don't want to buy this program. That to me is so terribly harmful because it leaves us with the feeling that we should be shamed for holding our own and trusting ourselves and the self-trust that is already so precarious in a situation in a, in a global context where we are constantly, you know, that self-trust is constantly um, bombarded. I feel like if we have the option on a marketing and sales level to work more with how can I build that self-trust in the human that is across from me. I feel like we'll actually create much better relationships and much better sales conversations and much better income and profit because we actually have a a, a two-way street where the person across from us is not treated as a number, but treated as a whole human that actually knows themselves well enough to be able to make a choice. So it's almost like it's the kernel at the very center of it all. Like the idea that us as humans, we know enough. We don't need to have another course or another thing or another, you know, another thing to help us become better or somehow, you know, sometimes it's really helpful to us to have other people you know, guide us in a new way. And obviously, (laughs) I sell those kinds of services myself. Sometimes it's really good to have someone who can mirror us. But it's really harmful to say that, hey, I have the only answers. And hey, if you want to be a successful business owner, this is how much money you should make. Or let me show you the newest ways in which you can, you know, undermine other people's self trust in order to be a successful person. I just find that so profoundly abusive <laughs> and so unfortunate. and I think it is really at the heart of a lot of um, the very deep intrinsic psychological ways in which that we you know operate in sales calls and in in marketing messages. So yeah, that would be personally where I would like to see people go a lot more
0: what worries you most? in terms of potential development of the current state of things in marketing and maybe business in general?
1: What worries me most?
0: Like wh- where I th- things yeah. can go really bad?
1: I think there is a bit of a nihilistic view that has come into the world recently with the fatigue around COVID and the fatigue around global crises and the harm that is being caused and the absolute powerlessness that we experience or that I for sure experience and most of my friends around the state of the world um, and how much we can do about it. And I think what worries me most is that that is going to be, that is going to keep us from really believing in a change and working towards a change. And I know I fear this because I feel it myself. I had a definite dip in motivation over the summer, especially when I was in Switzerland visiting my family, and which is very close to the Ukraine. And it just the constant conversation, which you know in North America, we can conveniently avoid feeling like well what's the point here what am i doing why you know why not go back to my little house and just enjoy the times i can spend in the sun until it all goes bust um so i think what worries me most is a collective fatigue <laughs> to actually change things because if we see hope and if we have it and if we can work towards a different way of being and have the power and the energy to do it which fluctuates, of course, you know, sometimes we have dips, sometimes it comes back, it's all fine. Um, but generally, if the consensus is we can't do anything, then that's going to stop any any potential for change in its tracks. If we have the hope that, yes, of course, I can see things changing, I can see things moving, we're actually making a difference, that will bolster the movement.
0: What's, what's the most positive feeling you have In terms of how things can develop, like where where is your (laughs) hope lies? What are the positive trends that you enjoy seeing?
1: I think I love that you're going from the worst to the best. (laughs) Um, The most positive I see, development I see is the, like, just daily pledges from people that are willing to take on ethical marketing with our movement and the messages that we get and all these like bigger corporations now reaching out to us going, okay, so we want to change things, but we can't put the badge on our website because we're government funded or whatever. Um, just seeing that people are Coming together and learning a different way, I think it really is the the one by one pledges that come into our Slack channels, um, and that just make us feel really good. And then, of course, the the collective that we're creating within our community and within our broader you know our broader sphere that there are constantly people with new, diverse perspectives coming to us with like, oh, hey, I just noticed this or here's something that we didn't know before and noticing that people really care and want to develop care for this new system that we're building or this, you know, morphed system. Um, So, yeah, I'd say that, even though that seems like a very small thing, but it really is a collective effort. And so every single perspective means a lot.
0: Yeah, seeing that people care, makes makes me happy every time I see it. Right, uh,
1: right. You're in yeah. this too, you know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe you could tell uh, my listeners where they can find you.
1: Sure, um, of course. Our movement is the Ethical Move. We are at theethicalmove.org. dot um, org and then I have a branding business where I help people with exactly that sort of values to ethics development um, at alicecarolina.com. And from there, you can find everything else.
0: Awesome. I think that this is definitely the future that companies mm-hmm. would hire ethics consultants. Uh, I agree. And specifically <laughs> in marketing. Yep. Yeah. Because it's a big part of, you know, uh, of, let's say, an outgoing activity for most companies, right? What, how the public perceives companies.
1: I agree. Communication,
0: yeah. public perception, and many of the related fields like social responsibility, privacy, AI ethics. All these areas are growing. So it's great to see you leading the way, Alice. Um,
1: thank you I love that you you plucked that right out of my brain because that's where I'm looking next to actually work on more ethics consulting and how can we actually bring this into bigger corporations so not just small businesses learn to change I love that
0: yeah well I wish you success with this community and uh, your business and thank you for now I'll thank you Elise for coming on the show Thank you. Thank you.
1: I love this. This was such a good, deep conversation. I loved it so much. And I'm so glad you're here and doing this for all of us. Thank you.
0: And this is the end of this episode. You can check the show notes where you can find links to the community, the ethical move that Alice mentioned, as well as other resources. If you liked this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it for now. And until next time, bye. Thank you.